welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to The Common Bridge. This is our 60th episode, and Rich is proud to have a retired police officer as his guest today, and I'll have him introduce that guest. Now, this is going to be a two-part podcast, so it'll run today and next week as well. So let's join The Common Bridge in progress. Well, welcome to The Common Bridge. Uh, we've got a really special episode today. Uh, it has to do with policing in America, and as my listeners know, I will go find experts and do some research. And sometimes you don't have to go far to find an expert to give you real world experience. And so my cousin, Bruce Helpy, is our guest today. Now, Bruce, I will tell you this, is one of the most fair human beings that I know. He is the most stand-up guy. He graduated from college with a degree in history, and he joined the police force in an urban setting. He's a very focused guy. He's a power lifter, a martial artist. He earned the Blue Star for an incident where he was, again, very heroic in defending his partner and resulting in taking gunshot wounds himself. He's very seriously injured and thankfully survived that. He's earned service award recognition. And he's got a, a great perspective that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. So, Bruce, so glad you're on the Common Bridge. No, thank you. Nice introduction. The only correction I'd make was I was a police officer for almost 31 years. Yeah, right. It's been 31 years. Part of that's because you, you look so young. Bruce, talk to our listeners just a little bit about your experience when you were with the police force. What kind of patrol duties did you have? Who are some of the partners that you rode with? And maybe what are some of the key things that stood out in your mind from that 31 years of experience? Well, like most policemen or almost everybody, I uh, went through an academy that was sponsored by the Toledo Police. So I went through their in-house academy. It lasted, uh, let's see, started in Jan or September and it ended in January. So however many months that is, four or five months. They send you out on FTO, kind of... Um, what would you call that? What did they call it at the time? It wasn't really FTO training. Uh, you did kind of ride along. So even before we got out of the academy, they sent us out with officers. Then you were, when you graduated, you I went to street duty, uh, which I believe everybody in my class did. We were the largest class in the city of Toledo at the time. It was uh, We had 130 recruits. About 120 of us graduated. I had partners. You, they, you were assigned to partners in field operations for the first couple years. We rotated through the shifts, so they had, at that time, I don't know what they're doing now. I've been retired for six years, but we had typical days, afternoon, midnight shifts, and there was an eight to four, eight at night to four in the morning uh, overlap shift that I never worked uh, till the end of my career. So you'd typically be on one of those shifts for four months at the time I went on, and you were Assigned a veteran partner. I was signed in the inner city. I worked with Keith Miller, and we'd been working all of a week when we were sent to a domestic violence that turned bad. 
We were kind of blocked on the stairway. We were admitted into the house by um, a young girl. Police had been called. We were dispatched to the call. We were blocked by uh, about a 285-pound man. Didn't want to let us upstairs. The call was that he was beating his wife with a two-by-four. He blocked the stairs. He's screaming and yelling at us. As we come up the stairs, my partner, Keith, kind of basically said, well, you're under arrest. And we got in a, we got in a struggle on a stairwell that I'm not going to go into the whole play-by-play of what happened. But during the process of um, get coming down the stairs, somehow he was able to pluck my partner's gun out of his holster and he shot both of us. I would have been shot. I was shot several more times in the close quarters that the shooting occurred. I was able to grab the gun, twist it back and in the guy's direction. He shot himself and uh, he bled out. My partner and I both had multiple gunshot wounds. My partner was shot four times, two in the face. I was hit three times. Uh, I also got disarmed during that encounter um, and was shot with my own gun. So my part, I was shot with my partner's gun and uh, we were both shot with our own guns and with the, with the partner's gun. That was the first kind of real domestic I'd even been to. They told us in the academy how those things can go bad really in a heartbeat, and I found out the hard way they do or can. I I remember that uh, distinctly. It was probably one of the worst calls I've ever gotten, and being down there to to see you, you probably don't remember that, but I was there. Actually, I do. I remember a lot of people came. I, I, I got a lot of support. It was overwhelming, really. I even had, I got cards from people I didn't know. I don't know if anything was screened. Remarkably, I didn't get death threats or, you know, hate mail. Which You know, I mean, we're going to lead into this in these times, but you and Keith Miller, white officer and a black officer, became very good friends. Keith and I were only partners for that one week. We never worked together again. You know, I was off work for several months. Keith was off, I think, from March until about December. We never worked together again. We just coincidence put us at another call like 25 years after this one where we were in a second shooting together, but we weren't partners at the time. He was a sergeant. I was a patrolman, and we just happened to both wind up at the same call. I know that during that incident, I know you're being modest, that when the perpetrator got a hold of Keith's weapon and discharged it, hit both of you that you wrestled him with one hand and got the uh, the gun pointed down. And what I want our listeners to understand is that we've talked on this program before about the very difficult job of a police officer that in the course of a shift, or in fact, in the course of a few minutes, you don't know if you're going to a domestic dispute, a neighborhood argument, a lost pet, a wellness check, an alarm's gone off, a clearly mental health issue because it's never evident immediately or not often evident immediately that it's mental health. And at any time, perhaps things explode into a violent confrontation. So Bruce, you handled all those calls, I'm sure. Uh, pretty much, I'd say uh, quite a few of them. So this, this portrait we're getting painted in certain places of the media that angry, bloodthirsty police officers are trying to hunt down members of the community. Is that what your experience was or how would it differ? Here's what officers are doing. They're, they're reacting how they were trained. What the public doesn't quite understand is 
that at least the way I was trained, and it's sanctioned by the state of Ohio, and it's probably pretty much the standard around the country, officers are allowed to use a higher level of force than that being used against them. So if somebody comes at you with a knife, you're allowed to shoot them. You know, if they come at you with any kind of deadly weapon, a tire iron, a, a knife, try to run you over with their car. Those are clearly situations where officers are allowed to use deadly force. Now, there's still judgment that has to be considered there. If somebody's, you know, 100 yards away from you with a knife, are they going to be able to stab you? Probably not. There's a distance and distance, size of um, an assailant. The common thing is fearing for your life, which gets criticized, but that's part of the equation too, I would say. it's. But every department's going to have a use of force policy. It's written down. It's usually worded in a fairly nebulous manner. They can't spell out every situation that can possibly happen. So it revolves around kind of generalities. And then I guess it's going to be, you know, judged later by, you know, what the the events that happened. We, we had Sheriff Jerry Clayton on the Common Bridge earlier, and he talked about the officers arriving on the scene, and in, her, in his case, sheriff deputies arriving on the scene, and their first responsibilities: see if they can de-escalate, create space, set up a perimeter, try to avoid an escalation. Is that been your experience, or do you see the police officers being more aggressive, trying to get in, take care of something as quickly and as aggressively? And Sometimes there's direct action that needs to be taken, and other times there isn't. I've been in standoffs. The I, I mentioned the second shooting I was in with Keith Miller. In that situation, the, uh, the man's wife called. He, they were riding in a car together. She said he was talking crazy, and he had a gun. He got out of the car. He's walking. So they sent me, Keith Miller. We came from different directions. I came around a corner, and I saw Keith out in the middle of the street. Well, this guy had a gun in a holster on his side, and Keith's pointing the gun at him, telling him to, you know, get his hand off the gun. We, you know, ended up in a debate with the guy, tried to talk with the guy, and, uh, he ended up pulling out a second gun. He well, first he pulled the gun and pointed it at his own chest. So it's so there was negotiation, like he was, you know, a suicidal man. Well, then he came out with the left hand with a second gun, you know, pointing, you know, in the direction of other Keith and other officers. And three officers shot, three didn't. I did not shoot that time. That guy was shot and killed right in the street. We've had other incidents where we had Joseph Chapel that went on a, you know, shooting spree, shot, you know, an ex-girlfriend, he carjacked a car, he shot the fireman, he attacked a fire truck that was going to help victims, shot some girl, stole, stole another girl's car, a pizza delivery driver, shot and killed her, and the police chased him down and shot and killed him, you know, in a Kroger parking lot. He careened in there and, you know, they, you know, he'd obviously been on a murderous rampage. So they, there wasn't really any negotiating. He got out with a, I think a shotgun and he was blasted by, you know, three officers and killed on the spot. I don't know if there's a, a really a single answer to that. Sometimes, sometimes there's negotiation if you can negotiate and other times, you know, negotiations aren't in the picture. 
Well, let's turn to some of the specific things that have been in the news. In particular, I'm looking for both your viewpoint and then maybe we try to talk a little bit about policy answers. So the bank robber, I'll come back him pointing his gun at his head. You have armed officers, armed person that's obviously disturbed and has just engaged in criminality and led officers on a chase. Is there any window there for intervention by mental health worker, social worker, or anything of that nature? I would say not in that case. Obviously, you got a bank robbery, you got a federal crime combined with uh, you know a high speed chase through Toledo that lasted, like I said, 40, I'd say 45 minutes. Um, and the guy was taken into custody. He was, he was not injured. You know, that one we were able to, there was like a perimeter. He was kind of boxed in and he decided not to shoot it out or, you know, do something that was going to create his own demise. So he was taken into, he wasn't injured at all. I believe, you know, I don't think he had, you know, anything other than handcuffs on his wrist. That's really the goal with officers, I think, pretty much around the country is, I remember Keith Miller, one of the things, I I had been to other calls with him later on in both of our careers. And, you know, I remember him talking to people saying, you know, we could do things the hard way or the easy way. And he goes, I'd rather do things the easy way. And that's the mentality I have. I'd rather not you know, get in trouble, not get hurt, not hurt anybody. I think that's the goal of most policemen. I agree uh, with that, that that's what we're all after is good policing, the appropriate amount of, of service. So, Bruce, some cases, and I know we probably can't dissect them in great detail, but Michael Brown, and I think you and I may have a little different view on that, but as a a very seasoned police officer, a lot of street experience. Your view on Michael Brown, if you care to share it. If you want to pass, we'll go to the next one. No, I I thought the false narratives kind of started. That happened right after I retired. I retired in June of 2014. I believe that happened in maybe August of the same year. From the accounts that I saw, Mike Brown went into a carryout. Mike Brown was about six foot five, three hundred pounds from what I read. He went in the carryout, decided to steal cigars from the carryout. There was a little Asian man that was the owner or the manager, he's a clerk, whatever he was in the site at the time. He came in front of Mike Brown basically saying, Hey, pay it looked to me like he was saying it was I think it was uh non uh it was a video that didn't have any audio to it and wanted payment for the cigars. Mike Brown drew his fist back as if he was gonna hit him. I think Mike Brown, like I said, six five, three hundred. This guy looked to be, you know, five foot six, a hundred and 30 pounds. In police parlance, that would be a strong arm robbery. He was threatening force. A theft offense combined with force equals robbery. It's a, in Ohio, it's a second degree felony. So he walks away from the carryout. He's walking down the street, in the middle of the street, him and a, I think a friend, I think there was two of them from what I remember. The officer, I believe his name was Darren Wilson, drives up, tells him to get out of the street. But I don't know at what point, if um, during that call or as he stopped to tell him to get out of the street, he got word of a robbery or theft, whatever, from this carryout. So he stopped a question about that. Well, Brown came up to the car, punches through the open window, punches 
Wilson in the face several times. Wilson's gun goes off in the car. Whether Brown was grabbing it or Darren Wilson was trying to get the gun, I don't know what happened there, but a shot went off. So Brown leaves. Wilson gets out of the car, and Brown decides to start walking back to the scene. I don't know everything that happened there, but Wilson opens fire on him. Then there's the question of how far away was he? Um... So you have a couple different crimes here. He was unarmed. Should he have been shot? You know, is he a threat to Wilson? He could, he could have been. Had he, you know, charged, he charged up the hill at him or ran at him. There's probably a likelihood he would probably try to disarm him if he was trying to disarm him in the car. That's basically my take on it. And I know that the Obama Justice Department through Eric Holder, did investigate the shooting and said there was no violation of civil rights at all. You know, what I'm puzzled by is this. One of the allegations was that Michael Brown had reached through the car window and got the gun of the officer. And I'm thinking, I don't know a guy that big can fit through a window and reach across an officer all that big and get to the gun. It just didn't seem to make any sense to me. And that if Michael Brown was shot. That At that point, now you have someone that's wounded, they're traumatized, the officer's in fear, they're yelling at each other. We know that Michael Brown was returning toward the officer, now whether he was aggressive or whether he was following command, we don't know. But at that point, you know, the officer fired and again, the officer was ultimately exonerated. Let's move to George Floyd. I know, Bruce, that you watched some of the video with George Floyd and you said you had been in similar situations. And I think when we were chatting about this you know, weeks ago, you said you probably would have had him sit up, given him some water and ask him if he was done with the struggle and maybe take him to the appropriate place, medical or jail. If from a, the officer's point of view, what did you see as you watched the films about George Floyd? Well, if you just see the one like they showed on the news initially, it looked pretty bad. It looked pretty bad for Derek Chauvin. Look like, okay, he's just, uh, you know, kind of torturing this guy, holding him down with his knee on his neck. I'm going, that doesn't look like anything that looks like standard police practice to me. But I also did reserve judgment on that because I go, you know, you're allowed to do what your department trains you to do. And I go, I haven't really heard where his department said that he could or couldn't do that. Nobody had come forward and denounced that tactic saying, well, he's never allowed to put a knee on somebody's neck. Some departments outright ban chokeholds. Now, a lot of them probably are in the wake of all this. They, they seem to be. But recently, I've read where his department even allowed the knee on the neck. And I saw a subsequent video that I think was from... It was one from one of the other officers' cars that showed the initial stop with them getting Floyd out of the car, and he wasn't really all that cooperative. They got him out, and uh, once they, they handcuffed him, he started kind of freaking out. A large person like George Floyd, a lot of times they're not going to fit real well in the back of a police car. I think he was six foot eight. George Floyd decided to fling himself to the ground. Chauvin appeared to, um, it seemed to me that he he felt like he was doing something that he was allowed to do. I'm watching that and I'm going, well, is he allowed to do this? I was never trained to do that, to put a knee on somebody's neck. 
We were also trained with somebody that's handcuffed with their hands behind their back, which is standard. They didn't want us ever handcuffing anybody in front. We were allowed some exceptions if somebody had physical deformities or obvious injuries where, you know, you would have to handcuff them in the front. Then you're supposed to use a belt to help hold their hands down so they couldn't use them against you. Anyway, there's a thing called positional asphyxiation from being on your stomach for, you know, in that kind of a sort of a hog-tie position. So I'm watching the the initial video thinking, well, why aren't they kind of sitting him up? He said, hey, I'm giving, you know, basically was saying he was giving up. So I think that part's kind of problematic for for Officer Chauvin. But then I said he's mitigated quite a bit by the idea that his department allows him to do that, you know, even the knee on the neck from what I understand. Yeah, but and I think that's, that's some of the public outrage is that the knee on the neck shouldn't be something allowed by the officers representing, you know, us. The I was shown some restraining techniques where you would use your knee against the side of somebody's head to keep them pressed down on the pavement. That keeps, you know, if your head's pinned to the ground, it's hard to move. I don't think much risk of death with that. That's what I kind of question. You kind of pin the head, pin the head, but then you do it for the length of time. You get somebody handcuffed, and if they've calmed down off, they're screaming, kicking, trying to bite you. Maybe you 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 keep them down longer. But you said Floyd was signaling he was giving up. I think they probably could have sat him up. But I said that's I don't know if they're. I, I kind of go by whatever his department, you know, whatever their training. Um, you know, section tells them they can or can't do. If he was trained to do that, and that's what he did, like I said, I haven't heard any disavowals from any command, you know, the upper command of the Minneapolis Police Department. I haven't heard any, you know, a training officer or even the chief come out and say, well, this is, you know, strictly prohibited that he did. He went outside his training. I haven't heard, you know, anybody say that. And I think that's the the root of it. So just a couple observations I'd made as a a civilian in this. First of all, that the officer was, when he's kneeling on his neck, he's got his hands in his pockets. He's just like casually sitting there. And thought, That's what I thought I saw. I'm not sure. You know, somebody said he had a glove on, but I thought he had his hand in his pocket. And yeah, I don't know if you take that as he was torturing the guy or if he's not applying that much pressure. He's just thinking he's holding him down. So I, that's why I said I'd kind of like to hear Chauvin, you know, what his explanation for what he was doing was. And then I think it begs the other question. When I saw this, when the, the initial encounter with George Floyd, when another passenger in the car, a woman said, you know, George kind of isn't right in the head. And it was obvious to me watching it that he was in distress from the moment and whether it was emotional or uh, psychological or, you know, he had a lot of drugs on board at that time. He, he really wasn't right. And I don't know that he, he could have responded to commands. And, and so I'm just saying from a policy perspective, is there another way? Is there, you know, could a perimeter be established and 
the you know a, a different kind of uh, here's some other issues you have with George Floyd because I'll hear the uh, you know he wasn't doing anything he was giving up well first of all he went into a store you know I think he I, for the story I get I think it was that he was trying to pass a counterfeit bill I believe that was it was either a counterfeit bill or a bad check but I think it was a counterfeit bill that's a crime that merits investigation. And then he goes back to a, the car, and he's sitting in the driver's seat. So if he's intoxicated on drugs, is should he be sitting in the driver's seat? I don't know if the keys were in the ignition or not, but that's that's essentially a DUI. Coroner's reports have said he's had fentanyl and various other drugs in his system. I think methamphetamine was another one. We can all agree nothing he was doing warranted a death sentence, no matter what. Exactly. He didn't. He didn't. He shouldn't. Have, he shouldn't have died. But you know, then I think the question still becomes: Okay, did he die because of a knee on the neck, or did he die because you know he was so geeked up on illegal drugs that just the um, the added stress of resisting arrest and uh, his own emotional state created? Uh, I don't know if he had a cardiac arrest. I'm not sure what they were saying the cause of death was. But So the city was burned down. If you were the mayor of Minneapolis and you said, you know what, I don't want to get the city burned down again, would, would there be any policy changes or would it be more, would it be something more about how to guide people when they interact with the police force? Well, it, you know, it's, it's, it's unpopular to, to, to say this, the, there's false narratives around all these, pretty much all of these police killings or police deaths, deaths at the hands of the police. If you watch the news, they portray all these incidents as if the person that was that ultimately died was a complete innocent person that hadn't done anything. That the police showed up and killed him. And what what it's it's counterproductive because. A couple things. One, it it encourages people to resist arrest. And when people resist arrest, the police are going to escalate force. That's just how they're trained everywhere in the country. Every every police department in the country is going to basically give the police a green light when people start fighting with them or resisting arrest to up the ante. So tasers come out or nightsticks or, you know, guns. If it you know, reaches that level. So it's going to get more people hurt. It's also going to get more police hurt because people are going to be violently resisting because um, they don't think they, they think they don't have to follow the law. I've said that much more good could be accomplished if public service messages were put out that when you're driving a car, it's required by law to have your license on you. You're required to you, you sign off on that when you get your driver's license in any state that you'll produce your license on demand of police and that resisting arrest, there's a good possibility you get injured. If that was the message that was sent out instead of, you know, resist the police, they can't stop you. You know, you're not doing anything wrong, whether you've, you know, strong arm robbed a store you passed out drunk in the drive-through at Wendy's. Would politely walk through your DUI uh, field sobriety test, then decide to fight with the police when they arrested you. Disarm one of its taser. You know these things wouldn't happen. It's not up to you to be either to be the uh, judge or jury too of encounters with the police. That's for the courts. I think that the 
chief of police in Detroit would uh, agree with what you've said. There was an incident that we talked about uh, not far from a place that you and I spent a lot of our childhood, uh, but a young man uh, pulled a, a firearm on police officers. They shot him. Shot and just missed one. I think it went right past his head. And the other, and one of the officers shot and killed the kid. And uh, until the, I saw where Chief Craig had put out the video because they were already rioting and uh, making a big stink that, uh, you know, and I go, hey, the police, the police aren't out there to be cannon fodder. You know, that the job's dangerous enough. They're not obligated to be killed because somebody wants to act up. They don't have to wait to be shot to return fire. Well, I think, look, that's what uh, James Craig said recently. So when protesters uh, assaulted police with rocks and railroad spikes and fireworks, there was no calls to investigate them. But there were some congressional reps and others grandstanding about wanting to investigate the Detroit Police Department and including trying to get courts to order that the Detroit police cannot use batons, shields, gas, rubber bullets, chokeholds, or sound cannons against peaceful protesters. And I don't think a peaceful protest, you wouldn't need to do anything like that. But the definition, I think, of peaceful protest has morphed now to include arson, quite frankly. And we've right. all seen we've all seen the videos of reporters saying protest is mostly peaceful. And I know, uh, you know, Bruce and uh, you and I, as a couple of ball players, probably saw the film from Portland where the guy with the weakest arm in the crowd threw the Molotov cocktail and lit other people that were out there. <laughs> protesting or, or, or doing civil unrest. Seth. I saw a partial interview with a Portland officer. I don't I don't know who the interview was on YouTube. There was a, a, I believe he was a patrol sergeant and he had been at, you know, ground zero of these riots or protests, whatever you want to call them. I'll call them riots because that's basically what they've turned into. And uh, he said one of the, and I, I was in the, there, there was a Nazi riot in Toledo, I don't know, before I retired, that's probably about 14, 15 years ago, that turned into a pretty big deal. It was on CNN. I was on, I was at ground zero of that on the street in the front lines of that. You don't know who the peaceful protesters are because there's, everything's chaotic and there's people that are probably wouldn't harm a, harm a fly you know, holding the signs and, you know, walking, they might be yelling things at the police, but they're not really going to hurt anybody. But then there's, I guess, infiltrators or people that are taking advantage of the situation to be um, violent. Yeah, as you said, arson, you know, uh, commit arsons and uh, assault the police. They're, they were shooting firecrackers and, uh, you know, I guess, I forget what they're called, um, class whatever, B or C fireworks or projectiles. They were firing them at the officers, throwing bags of urine. Um, he said the guy with the Molotov cocktail, it was intended for the police to hit his own people in his crowd. I think you're right. I, I think it morphed into something that uh, isn't a peaceful protest anymore. And I think um, it's really becoming counterproductive. Okay, that's going to be a good breaking point for this episode, and we'll pick this conversation that Rich is having with his cousin, retired police officer Bruce Helpy, next week on The Common Bridge. 
You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge Podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.